The Home Show with Sinead Ryan on News Talk. Hello and you're very welcome along to the latest episode of The Home Show podcast. I'm Sinead Ryan, your host. Coming up today, we're going to take a peek behind the doors of Ireland's dream homes with Owen Riley, estate agent. The Yumi's Award is the highest award for contemporary architecture. We'll speak to the president of the RIAI. And I'll be chatting to James Grace, timber framer, teacher and organiser of a roofing masterclass and unplugging your home with Joe Regler, Neve Marr. If you'd like to get involved in our podcast, you can email us during the week at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram all the time uh, at Sinead Ryan 100 if you'd like to drop me a line there. Uh, and you are very welcome along to The Home Show podcast. Now, we all seem to be obsessed with how the 1% live. But when we get to look inside the homes, it's a rare glimpse uh, on how to live, how to furnish, how to be when money is no object. Well, one of the sales agents on RTE's new series of inso- Selling Ireland's Dream Homes uh, is joining me now to tell me all about what we can expect. Uh, Owen Riley, uh, Estate Agency, thank you very much for joining us on The Home Show. My pleasure. Now, it seems we can't get enough of property programmes on telly, uh, at the, I say at the moment, at any time. Uh, what do you think it is? in the Irish psyche that we love a peep behind the hall door of other people's houses. Yeah, I think you're right. I think interest, interest in the property sector and, and homes is huge uh, thanks to social media and reality TV, particularly obviously uh, shows like um, Million Dollar Listing and Selling Sunset. So I think interest in the sector, but also in these amazing homes has, has never been higher. And I think Ultimately, Sinead, I think it's it's a little bit of escapism. Um, as you said it there, uh, the, this is a very niche market, um, you know, and they, they, these properties tend to have interesting owners. Not all the time, but they tend to have a, a very interesting, or some of them have very interesting owners. And you can see that in the in selling Ireland's dream homes. You know, you've got a you've got a rock star, you've got a you've got a pop star, um, you've got some well known uh, Irish business families, and I think people love that kind of behind the scenes uh, look because, you know, whether it's the lighthouse or the, the, the castle or the, the penthouse in Ballsbridge, um, only a, a handful of people are ever going to be inside the t- interiors of these homes. And the show just gives that uh, insight into uh, for the public into something they otherwise wouldn't see. Now, the series features homes like that are just some of them are out of this world. They're, well, they all are actually, but some of them are in the country with tons of land around them. Some are old castles or, as you say, kind of modern apartments. Tell us about the one uh, that you featured in. It's in Kalini. Um, t- talk to me a little bit about the property. So Carrickmaline is a 200-year-old mansion on Kalini Hill Road. Um, so the house has an amazing history. Um, there's been some additions over the years, um, some at the, at the end of the 19th century, some in the middle of the 20th century. Um, it's on two acres, uh, so for that location, it's, it's just quite unbelievable. And the, the site is quite elevated, so it has views towards uh, Dublin Bay and the Sugarloaf. And they really have to be seen to be believed. And when you're in the middle of the grounds, you feel like you are in the countryside. And um, the property itself is very spacious. It has a lot of original features. So you have these beautiful um, high ceilings, magnificent fireplaces, and uh, which are just in beautiful um, condition. Um, 
The ground has beautiful mature trees um, and and really it's just a really special home and it's just amazing that uh, such a home still has two acres uh, given the amount of development that has happened with a, a lot of properties sitting on those plots. Mm. Now you mentioned the niche market. Do these homes typically take longer to sell than maybe your average four bed semi? Yes, they do. That is a feature of this market. So um, the, 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 the pool of buyers at this end of the market is actually quite small. So, so for example, um, Carrick Moline is, is still on the market. Um, I'm actually showing, um, I'm actually there tomorrow with a second viewer. Um, that party last viewed before Christmas, uh, they haven't been in Ireland since. Okay. So I'm now meeting them tomorrow. So it is a feature of, of that market and it, it's not uncommon for these houses to be on the market for one to two years. Right, of course, because, I mean, you just don't have that amount of buyers. And wh- what kind of price is it guiding at, Owen? We're seeking €4 million. Euros. Wow, OK. Right, so not for everyone. But then, I suppose, ironically, for a lot of people who would buy homes like this, it's probably not even their only home. This, this particular party I'm chatting to, this will be their, their Irish home. Um, they they have homes in they have a home in London and they have a home in in New York and another feature uh, of, of this particular sale is it's very likely whoever buys Carrick Moline and it is definitely going to sell um, we 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 have interest from other parties as well will probably spend one to three million um, refurbishing it or adding to it to their own taste. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, four million is only the beginning of it. And tell me, what do buyers at this end of the market expect? I mean, okay, uh, like we all need bedrooms, sitting rooms, kitchens, you know, but uh, and everything there is bigger and better and more of it. But but what other elements sell a property like this? Is it a swimming pool, a tennis court, a bar? Yeah, for some, I think if, fundamentally it starts with location and setting. So. It needs to be close to amenities. Um, it needs to be, uh, in general, it needs to be close to the airport. Mm. Um, they're for looking the, for, for the private bit. jet, maybe to park it from um, the bank. <laughs> they're, they're, you know, or, or a helipad maybe on the grounds. Of um, course, of course. They're yes. looking. They're definitely looking for privacy. They're very uh, privacy conscious. Um, they're looking for something that's special at four million. Um, they're expecting something special. Um, even in you know in Dublin, four million is a is a big price, a mm. big asking price, um, particularly when someone is going to spend uh, money, significant money on the on the property after buying it. So they're looking for something that's special. Uh, I think what's attracting people to Carrick Moline is the grounds, the mm. two acres of grounds, mm. um, and it is very private and it does have the view as well. And of course, I think at four million uh, plus, uh, you would expect a view. Now, Owen, um, many of the homes featured on the series, Selling Ireland's Dream Homes, were staged. And increasingly, I suppose, that is becoming mainstream for lots of homes at the upper end, but even mainstream houses. Do you advocate that? So staging is where you you hire in or buy in furniture, pictures, put flowers out, all that kind of thing to, to make the house more attractive. Is that something that you see very often? Yes, Sinead, if you were to ask me the main difference between how we market today and how we marketed 10 years ago, it would be staging. Um, Along with it, there's been a big um, improvement in in videos, uh, videoing of properties and also viewer tours. But obviously, it it needs to um, showcase the the home to its optimum. So, and, and 
five years ago, staging was probably uh, a feature of the upper end of the market. But now uh, agents are staging everything from one-bedroom apartments to five-bedroom detached homes. Um, ultimately, it is a numbers game. The more people see a property, inquire on a property, visit a property, the more interest you're going to generate. Um, the more interest you generate, you're going to get um, the best possible price mm. and in the shortest time frame as well. Most staging contracts are for two to three months. Okay, all right. And um, we have had uh, guests in before who who kind of specialise in that market. So there's a job that wasn't on CVs uh, a couple of decades ago. Now, in terms of the regular Irish market, while I have you, Owen Riley, um, where many struggle to find and buy even an apartment, you have a big business in this in Dublin City Centre. How are things looking? There has been some commentary recently that prices are beginning to level out. Are you seeing that? Yes, very much so. Um, in fact, uh, some parts of the some sectors of the market last year, particularly city centre apartments, barely moved in value. Uh, in fact, they fell at the start of twenty twenty three, and increased a little bit at the end of the year due to a chronic shortage of supply of properties for sale. And that's the biggest challenge for buyers right now uh, is the shortage of properties mm-hmm. for sale. I think that after ten consecutive interest rate hikes, you would expect. Uh, you would have expected prices to fall. Yeah. Um, and they did fall at one stage, but they didn't fall as much as buyers hoped because of the chronic shortage of supply. Yeah. And to give you some context on that, Sinead, in September, October and November last year, there was 23% less properties listed for sale on myhome.ie compared to 2022. And when compared to 2019, the last year before COVID, there was 35% less properties for sale. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very tough for for buyers uh, right now. Uh, the outlook for this year we think is is going to be similar. We're, we we uh, we're predicting values will increase one to two percent. And not all properties will go up. Not all properties will go up in value. Yeah. We're finding properties requiring refurbishment are much more challenging to sell. Yeah, and and despite all the government intervention schemes and the price chasing measures, like people don't want the hassle of it and trying to get contractors and the cost of construction inflation and all of that. So all the supply messages we're getting from government, there's more coming on, there's 3,000 of this and 4,000 of this and 5,000. You're you're not seeing the evidence of that, Owen? Well, in in, in the markets I operate, which is kind of um, city centre and the, the, the south and north suburbs, but well before the M50, you know, quite simply, there isn't really any significant new homes construction right. happening there. And, and the construction that is happening tends to be built to rent because mm. the development for apartments to owner-occupiers just uh, isn't viable uh, in most locations. Um, so the funds obviously get um, a hard time uh, in Ireland. But, you know, without those funds, those developments wouldn't have been built at all. And it's very interesting. Uh, I'm going off point here, but... Right now in the city centre in Docklands area, there's several built-to-let developments competing with another for tenants. And it is a case study and it, it has caused rents to certainly not go up and in some cases even fall a little. OK, so um, that's interesting because the, the funds, obviously, they swoop in, they buy up either a ready-built block of apartments or they get the developer in more likely and build them solely to rent. But if they're not going to keep making a profit on that, and we're talking about high rents, I mean, you're talking about the two, three thousand euro a month mark, aren't you, in those locations? I mean, yes, if that carries on, they'll be out of here as quickly as they came in. Well, you know, last year you had rising interest rates and rising construction costs at the same time. So 
right now I'm not aware of a new development that's going to break ground um, mm. in this in this environment. But I guess the point I was making is that without these funds, these developments would not have would yeah. not have happened. Yeah. And as I said, right now in some locations in Dublin, these um, built-to-rent developments are competing with one another, and they're you know they're offering inducements. Some are offering free Wi-Fi. Some are offering a rent-free period. And it just gives a window that if we built enough of these uh, developments and produced enough of these apartments, at the very least, rents would stop going up, yeah. and they might even they might even fall a little bit. Yeah. Going back to your point about um, new homes delivery, no, there are very positive signs there, and, and the, the Land Development Agency, I think, over the next couple of years, are going to emerge as the largest developer in Ireland. Mm. Um, but a lot of those homes are going to be delivered, you know, in, in the in the commuter counties and uh, along the M50. Um, the market I'm in, uh, as in the second-hand market, you know, I've never come into a new year with less stock than we have right now. There's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of people locked into uh, uh, their interest rate on their on their existing mortgage a couple of years ago when they started going up and they were reluctant to sell. But the bigger problem is a lot of, pe- a lot of people who would like to trade up or trade down are not willing to put their own property on the market first and sell it and enter the rental market until they find the next home. So they're just sitting tight. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, no no agent or seller is doing a deal subject to selling another property anyway. Mm. All right. Well, listen, I suppose then that's the, the, the game of two halves that is indeed the property market. Uh, and if anybody has €4 million Euros sitting in their back pocket, well, that they can go and buy that fantastic uh, house up in Kleine that you're selling, Owen. Uh, Owen Riley uh, of Owen Riley Agency. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Home Show. And the fourth and final uh, episode of Selling Ireland's Dream Homes airs next Tuesday on RT2 at 9.30pm. Now, the Royal Institute of Architects in Ireland is currently hosting the UMI's Awards at the Printworks in Dublin Castle until the middle of February. It's a great opportunity for people to look at Europe's best buildings from the comfort of Dublin. Uh, it's a European Union prize for contemporary architecture uh, and the highest honour a building can receive. So joining me now to tell me more about it is Sean Mann, the newly elected president of the RIAI. Congratulations and you're welcome to The Home Show. Thank you very much, Sinead. <laughs> now, for those uh, who have haven't heard of it. Talk to me a little bit about the UMIs. This is EU MIS, isn't that it? Yes, the, the, the prize is, uh, is uh, an award given by the EU and the Mies van der Rohe Foundation in Barcelona. It was set up in 1987 and has been uh, since then really the highest uh, honour for uh, EU buildings in terms of awards for EU buildings. So it's a very prestigious award and, you know, we're delighted that it's the exhibition is visited Dublin for, I think, only for the second time in its history. Yeah. And what does the exhibition involve? Um, these are past winners of the awards? No, the exhibition is actually all of the uh, the current uh, uh, short nominations, nominations okay. for the for the prize, and so it's very current and very contemporary, and it's a real chance to see, I suppose, some great examples of what's happening all across Europe, not just in Ireland, but there are also uh, a very significant number of entries and shortlisted uh, projects from Ireland as well, which which is fantastic. Tell us a little bit about what people can expect if they go along to Dublin Castle to look at this. Well, it's located in the Printworks, which is uh, mm. which is a great venue. Uh, it's on the ground floor of Dublin Castle and very accessible. And the exhibition is really it consists not only of drawings, but a whole series of uh, models 
and and uh, and and films and videos and so on. So it's it's very accessible to the public, and we really would encourage members of the public to visit the exhibition as well. You know, it's not just for architects; it's for everyone. And um, there's also, I, I understand, a series of talks and and workshops around um, you know different topics to do with with architecture. But one of them that struck me was um, featuring older buildings and how architects can bring new life for them. Now, this is, of course, the something that the government has been pushing here, both commercially and in the resi market, residential market. And it is really, really important. But architects have been doing that for a long time. Yeah, that's really uh, it's really uh, an interesting part of the exhibition. In fact, uh, there are a whole series of, of pieces of the exhibition like that that are focusing on some of the key some of the key challenges that we face as society in terms of how we how we manage our towns and cities, how we consider the reuse of our older buildings and how we begin to inhabit them. And I think there are some, you know, there are some really good examples of that, particularly across Europe. In fact, we're not quite so good at that in Ireland. And I think, you know, you only have to walk through some of the streets in, 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 in our towns and cities to see that uh, we, we, we have, we have, I suppose a way to go in terms of beginning to reuse some of the some of the areas above the shops, for instance, in the mm. towns centres. Mm. And uh, I think there's a lot to be learned from some of the key examples that are being developed in other cities and countries across Europe on this. I, I suppose it's always a challenge for architects um, to try and and do to merge or mash up that modern with um, old because the building standards are completely different now, you know, in terms of, um, you know, everything from lift shafts to air, air circulation to the type of brick you use. What are the biggest challenges faced with repurposing an old building? Because it must, it must be sometimes just easier and cheaper to raise it and build Yes, you're quite right. Actually, it can sometimes be easier to to build new new buildings on greenfield sites. But of course, uh, we still have to consider our older buildings for, for a whole series of reasons. Uh, you know, not just in terms of the, uh, the the cohesion of our city and the development of our of our city and the reuse of our old buildings, but also from a sustainability point of view, we have to continually look more carefully at reusing older buildings mm. and reusing materials that we currently have, because that's a much more sustainable way of building mm. for the future. Mm. So the challenges we face in that are really to do with. Uh, you know, challenges around building regulations, for instance, that that may be applicable to new buildings that cannot be achieved necessarily in older buildings. So we have to look at more innovative ways of achieving the same thing. So, for instance, that people will remain safe in those buildings and that the fire standards will have to be applied in a different way. Uh, but it is essential we do that. And what can we learn from the rest of Europe in regard to that kind of thing, maybe that we don't do here that you would like to see? Is it about that that change in building standards or I, are there other elements? I think I think uh, the biggest lesson really in all of that is that there has to be a, 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 an involvement of all of the stakeholders, you know, in, in coming together to ensure that, that whatever needs to be done has to be managed collectively. So um, in architects can do that and we do that very well because we're, our, our job is to bring people together and say, you know, what can we do uh, to achieve the fire standards and what can we do to reuse the existing materials that are on the site and what can we do to, you know, ensure that they, the building works work well and they get accessible mm. for people and they meet accessibility standards, for instance, that are now, that are uh, more difficult to achieve in, in older buildings. So it's a question of looking, you know, and bringing all the parties together and making, I suppose, a little bit 
have a different approach sometimes. That now you mentioned earlier the the um, living over the shop kind of stuff. The Creekonha scheme in particular was brought in by government to try and and revitalise city centres, mm. um, urban landscapes on streets and in towns and villages. Do you think there's more the government could be offering in that area? I mean, it offers grants to to do it up and and that kind of thing. But uh, you're saying we're not as great as, as we could be. Well, I think we're learning, and I think mm. we have to, we have to continuously learn more. And I think this exhibition. Uh, gives us an opportunity to look at some of the some of the innovative ideas and uh, that are being applied across other areas in in the EU, mm. uh, and to challenge ourselves really as to what we need to do collectively. I think I think some, sometimes it's too easy just to blame government on its own, but I think there's a wider cohort of people that that have to be involved. And I was saying earlier, they they you know it's a collective approach that's needed here. We need the city council to be involved, or the urban councils to be involved. We need government to have set set out good standards and and so on. And there are a lot of really good things in place. So, for instance, the 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 new government policy and architecture places for people sets some really good guidelines on quality placemaking. That's really focused on how to enhance places and spaces for people and for society. Uh, the new uh, sustainable settlement guidelines and the new housing standards that are that are currently um, coming out at mm. the moment, they will also set some really good quality standards for what needs to be achieved to improve uh, to improve the standards and quality uh, within our cities and within mm. our towns. So there's a lot of good things happening, uh, but we need to do more. And yeah. I think coming back to this exhibition. You know that sort of, it shows us what we can what achieve. can be done. Okay, uh, so maybe so maybe it is the it is uh, those in charge that maybe might hop along to the print works and have a look at what's available yeah, there. I, I think everybody should really. I mean, it's it, it is it is. Uh, we'd really encourage. I mean, it's not just for architects, but for yeah. for, for the public as a whole and for everybody that's maybe involved in the building. Uh, okay, uh, well, the Yumi's Award exhibition is in the print works, uh, Dublin Castle. Uh, it's running now until the fourteenth of February, uh, and it's free of charge. It is, and it's open to the public on uh, uh, all week from Tuesday until Saturday, so it's a chance to visit the exhibition at the weekend as well. And uh, yeah, and for anybody who wants to go there, they're more than welcome. And if you want to visit any of the, the talks, there are a number of talks and presentations that are on during the next uh, a few weeks. You can book those at rii.ie for anybody who wants to attend them. All right. Well, Sean Mahan, uh, President of the RIAI, thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show today. Thank you very much. My next guest, James Grace, is a traditional timber framer based in County Wicklow with a passion for wood, design and craft. And he's the owner of Grace Design, a company which creates bespoke architecture and furniture solely with wood. And he's now embarking on teaching a roofing masterclass beginning in March. Uh, James, you're very welcome to the Home Show studio. Thanks, Julie. Thanks for Now, having me. before we get on to what seemed to me the dangers of teaching a <laughs> roofing mm-hmm. masterclass um, <laughs> for the average person. Talk to me a little bit about how you got started uh, in the business with wood. Was it something you were interested in from a very early age? So, I guess carpentry was where I came into it. I was uh, a side carpenter working at, you know, normal jobs. And I was building a house kind of after the recession, but at 2008, uh, the house is straw walls and I needed something to hold the roof up. So it was actually my engineer who said you could consider building the whole house from post and beam. And that was the first time I'd done it. First and worst project. <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to set up a, a kind of a f- furniture and sculpture business. <clears throat> it's tricky. Tricky to get paid and stuff like that. Yeah. So a couple of clients were interested in the heavy timber work. 
and it just kind of took off from there. Wood, we know, is a very sustainable material and, you know, we are, a lot of companies are trying to get back to basics um, with it. Is sustainability important to you in your business and, and what woods do you work with to that end? Yeah, we we can't have our business without a good forestry model. Or that's the reason the timber framing isn't really prevalent in Ireland, is that our forests are decimated. You know, we have a kind of a crippled forestry system. In terms of what we could be producing, the likes of, you know, oaks and stuff. Oaks grow naturally here and they're a really good timber for working with in humid climates such as what we have. The sustainability is essential. You know, we're the, the end product of the forestry. We're so what are we growing instead then? Is it like firs and and forests of, of what? Ash, beech? It's mostly softwoods, you know, okay. which are fine, but they grow very quickly over here, which is good right. for producing. But yeah. the quicker a softwood tree grows, the weaker it gets as opposed to hardwoods. The quicker they grow to a certain point, the, the stronger they get. But do you have to wait. You have to wait much longer for them. Then is that the, is that the dilemma? It is. That's trees, though. You know, you mm. have to plan for the next generation. They'll give back a lot. Mm. But their one tenet is that you have to plant a generation before. Wow. Yeah. So we're not into that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, get, let's get them up and out fast. Yeah, once we have a, you know, once, we, once there's something there, then it's it keeps producing. Mm. But it's the starting point. Is the the tougher part and that's where we are now. Yeah. Now I know that um, I've had a look at some of this bespoke furniture you make and it's absolutely beautiful I have to say. It's really lovely and even the artistic installations in terms of gardens and that. But is it roofing that is the main part of the business? Uh, Yeah I guess it kind of is. Yeah it's the it's what we have in Ireland that is related to timber framing you know and you know, new houses and stuff generally is was our mainstay for mm. for making money and uh, roofing was where it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, talk to me about how you construct. Um, you, you, did I read that you don't use power tools? We won't be for the workshop, or the, we do use power tools. <laughs> yeah, at the start there was. You know, I had ideas for not using power tools. Yeah, doing it the old-fashioned yeah, way. Yeah, but, but after a while, it becomes kind <laughs> of essential. Okay, but you won't be doing yeah. it with the workshops. Now, Let well, let's move on to them then, because I know um, uh, a workshop in in making a roof sounds to me implausible. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- wh- tell me a little bit about how to work and the type of people that, that may come on it. Okay, so we have two workshops. The first one is a hewing workshop. So before sawmills were prevalent, axes were used, you know, and so you take the log, which is essentially a carrot shape, and you you cut off the sides to make a square beam. Um, so that's the first workshop, and it's where people can dip their toes into using very old methods. Um, and the second, from those logs then, we'll be taking those beams and we'll be making the roof out of those beams. And for that workshop, I think it's important for the person to have an end project in mind, whether it's a house or a structure for themselves or whether they're going to incorporate it into their own existing business. So it seems to me that students coming on this workshop will need a certain level of not they're in they're already mm. thinking of maybe doing a significant structural building on their own and they just want to say a master class in how to do it well yeah I, that's the idea you know i think <laughs> a lot of people are kind of looking to just use the tools as well you know okay. it's kind of a 
Do you think it's a forgotten art there? Yeah, we've forgotten a lot. Have we? Yeah. Is this is because of all the little and Aldi middle aisles where you can buy a <laughs> chainsaw mm. with your pint of milk? Have we just forgotten how to how to even make joints the old fashioned way? We're out of practice and we're not into that sort of speed anymore. You know, machines took over. Anyone who gets into the the wood joint element of it is doing it because of what they get back from the material, you know. So we definitely have lost that. We've lost a huge amount of skills. Our highest standard now can't match what they were doing mm. a thousand years. Mm. And sometimes you can see in old pieces of furniture, whenever we've auctioneers on or, or, or people who are involved in the antiques business, and you mm. can see just the beautifully crafted, mm-hmm. you know, chair legs or drawers or tables that were built to last hundreds of years and indeed they have. Yeah and a frame is essentially a a huge piece of furniture you know so um, I guess we never saw it as much over here either so Mm. there's not as much evidence of it around. Uh, We have a funny relationship with wood you know Irish people. How so? We're kind of terrified of it, you know. I Do you think? It, yeah, I think it kind of reminds us of our mortality and we don't like thinking about that. Really? Because <laughs> okay. it is, it's not as durable as stone, you know, so we have it in our heads. There was a lot of decks put in in the 90s from timber that wasn't suitable for this climate, you know. Ireland oh, is a, it's a tough place yeah. to build, And know? maybe people thought, oh, it'll be weathered. If I have that as my house frame, it'll all kind of wear away. Exactly, yeah, whereas okay. floors don't rot tables don't rot, you know, once it's within the fabric of mm. the house, then it's it's kind of a non-issue. But we we just, we've we've lost touch, you know, we lost our forests, we lost yeah. our, our identity of that, and now we kind of distrust it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it is coming back, but not, not as quickly as it is in Europe or other places where they're more progressive. Okay. And listen to me, where can people find out more about the workshops, James? So the, the website for the workshop specifically is mastertraditionalroofing.com mm-hmm. um, all the details will be on gracedesign.ie as well. Okay, that's your website and um, it's a six week event uh, beginning in March and it's located down in the beautiful countryside of uh, County Wicklow. So for any of you artisan uh, wood makers out there, wood carvers out there, that is the thing to get yourself to and uh, James Grace, timber framer uh, and now organiser of Masterclasses. Thank you. Mil- thanks a million for joining us on The Home Show. Thank you very much, mate. And you're very welcome back to the final part of the Home Show podcast this week. I'm Sinead Ryan and I'm delighted to be joined uh, once again by Creative Director of Journal.ie, Neve Marr. Now, at the top of the show, we were talking about the swizziest, the fanciest, the, you know, most fabulous uh, dream homes that Ireland has to offer. Neve, you're taking a totally different tack. You are taking us back to basics. Yep. Talk to me about, is it a movement? Well, I would say it is a slow-burning, ironically, movement. Um, Yeah, I was looking at trends for 2024 and I saw this piece in House Beautiful where it was talking about um, this particular trend which inspired me to do a bit more digging on it because I loved the concept behind it. So essentially it's the anti-smart home or unplugging your home and there was a designer in a piece, Nas Nozano and he basically said that his clients are coming to him and they're asking 
asking for a return to this anti-smart home. So they're getting rid of the harsh blue lights. They're saying no to bright touch screens. And they're essentially wanting to come home and it not feel like an episode of Black Mirror, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so Now, we've um, done loads of tech items over the oh, years yeah. on the home show. But I, I don't think I've ever heard had a guest on advocating that we get rid of gadgets. So it is like refreshing. Yes. Um, you know, that you're considering. What is the opposite of a smart home, by the way? Well, I mean, the dumb home, you could call it that if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to firstly say that, of course, these smart homes are there for the energy efficiency. So we're in no way saying that everybody should do this. But it's very much from a design point of view. And also, I think it's it's the trend behind that's driving it, which is people's want to actually un plug and to come home. Mm. So we're seeing this a lot with like the renaissance of wallpaper and like brown colours coming in even. It really is kind of harking back to the comfort of old times and I think that tech is is becoming a part of that. So it's even small things like the mechanical switch of a light switch which people like, mm-hmm. which people are now not having to do because of course you just say you know, Alexa turn on the lights and then it happens automatically. So um, I think it's interesting. I was really twigged by it and I wanted to do a little a little bit of shopping to see what I could get, which basically is an easy way to to turn off and to switch off. And so the, the hope is that your mind kind of switches off as well. And I suppose then with all of that, it means that we have to do uh, a little bit more for ourselves. Uh, by the way, the way we all used to, um, turning on light switches, going over and switching on the telly, you know, yeah, kind and turning on the like without it all being kind of automated and that phalanx of blinking lights vampire energy it's called so in fact it might be smart because it's energy saving when you're around but you're inclined to leave everything plugged in and switched on and you know even on passive and that eats up electricity. Absolutely. And sometimes things beep in my home and I don't even know what it's for. And I'm like, what is that beeping for? I have nothing turned on. So it's refreshing. I like the idea of it. There are ways that you can do, you know, smart things, but offline. So without the internet. And then, of course, if you're a little bit concerned about all of the data harvesting that's happening at the moment, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with that as well. Keep the privacy. Um, So talk to me about now how we like, because I mean, you're a style queen now. So (laughs) how are we going to do this in a stylish kind of way? It's not about going out and getting like, you know, an old television with rabbit's ears. I mean, we, no. we are we are actually we living things, in the 21st century. We want to keep things a little uh, stylish as well. So there are ways that you can do this in a very aesthetically pleasing. I went to Etsy and Etsy is just an absolute playground when it comes to this kind of stuff. I found these Heritage Series floral antique style light switches um, and they have a ceramic base. You can get a set of two. Now they're a bit spenny. A set of two is 61 euro 48 cents or you can get a set of 20 for 300 89 euro and 72 cents but they're handmade and they're gold filled and the the toggle on the light switch I think would fill me with joy they're very pretty they're very and, pretty um, like you said there's a, there's a switch but it's not like a plastic or no. a chrome this is like um, one of the ones you would have seen maybe in your grandmother's parlour yes it's beautiful and I would imagine now I haven't bought them but I would imagine that the sound of them is very pleasing <laughs> and you know they're brass so that well they they have the gold filled in the ceramic base and that's very in style for 2024 as well. A lot of, you know, brass and, and gold are coming back in. So they're beautiful. And Etsy in itself, if you want light switches and you don't just want to get the kind of gold ones that you can get on Amazon or Ikea, which are beautiful, but, you know, it's a very easy, quick fix way. Mm. And it also just adds so much interest 
to your space as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and also the added bonus of not needing a master's in engineering to get around your home oh, and, this is it. and switch things on. So um, so light switches are one way that we can we can definitely do that. Yes. And, and of course, there are lots and lots of people who, uh, me included, who don't have automatic command light switches. Yeah. So, you know, looking for something that's pretty and a little bit um, retro. Is that's a really nice. nice way to do. And I think kind of in keeping with lighting, because lighting is what you think of when you think of a smart home, you know, but I, I do think that it's important to think of the energy. So um, you can actually get LED lighting, which is obviously very energy efficient, but you can get um, one that aren't on the internet, which is good. Dusk to dawn LED lighting. Um, a huge reason behind smart homes, like I said, is to do with the energy efficiency. But you can get these that are actually sensor driven. So you can turn them on and off yourself or they literally respond to the light around you and they come on and they come off. Um, and they're, they're, they use very little electricity and they're €16.77 on Amazon as well. So they've got no internet connection. So you are offline but you're also keeping energy smart, which I like these. Dust to okay. dawn, LED lightings as well, okay. which is nice. Brilliant stuff. Um, now, I remember um, go. I remember doing a trip once. I was in, I think it was Cadiz in, in Spain in my, in my memory, and um, we were put into a hotel. It was a business trip. And it was one of these, they had become the smart city of the future mm-hmm. kind of thing. They were going through this loop. And um, goodness, I was put into a hotel room. I, I have to say, I couldn't... I couldn't draw a bath. I couldn't find the lights. Uh, couldn't lock the door. Couldn't open the minibar. Mm. Everything was required with either uh, wavy hands across kind of switches or Spanish. Yeah. And it was really hard work and it was very annoying and I didn't like it at all. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to me that even taps, even light switches, yeah. soap dispensers, everything has got over-engineered. Yeah, you'd be exhausted like. And I think it's interesting because it was definitely a, a fad, a phase. But what I'm seeing in interior design is definitely a return to comfort and Everybody is talking about how we're too much on our phones, we're too much on our iPads, we're too much on screens as it is. Is the home a place where you want to even have that as well, you know? So I, I was doing a little bit of research and I loved what I found here. It's it's basically parking your tech at the door. So a technology parking space, if you will. Um, so when you walk through your door, you have this on your hall table. Um, and it, the idea behind it is to basically plug all of your tech in when you get through the door first so that you don't use it when you're in the home. Um, it's, a, it's a multiple charging station as well. And I find that in a way of getting away from my technology and switching off, I actually do need it to be plugged in somewhere else. Mm. So you, you read a lot about this, about having no phone zones and having no tech zones like in your bedroom and stuff like that. Eliminate all of that and put everything out the door. Kind of like when you take your shoes off, when you come in, you don't think about them again. Like do this yeah. with your tech. That's such a great idea because as parents, we sometimes say to kids, now turn your phone off for having dinner Smart. and you're scrolling yourself Absolutely. while you're saying it. Yeah. So to have a parking spot where everything goes for family time, it's really great. It's really great. So this um, one that I found on Amazon is €43. Euro, um, and it's, it's really great as well because from an aesthetic point of view, you've got no more cluttered cables. It has seven short USB cables. So there's three compatible with Apple, three that are micro USBs, and then one compatible with Android as well. Not forgetting the Android lovers out there. So it has 
I mean, this is ironic because it has built-in intelligent chip <laughs> automation <laughs> so that it actually can detect the device and it can charge on demand. Um, but it's got really high ratings. And I love the idea of having a focal point for all of your tech because we're living in a modern world. But I yeah. just thought you we don't have need to, to bring have it, it but you don't need to bring it around the house all the time and have it in your back pocket. Exactly. Okay? Which I'm guilty of, I have to say. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Anything else now, Neve, that you want to bring us? Well, my final thing, I, I had to bring it up. It was one of the fa- my most favourite thing that I found uh, during this uh, little bit of shopping. And it's the clapper. Do you remember the clapper? It still exists. Who knew about this? Is this like a, a set clapper? Like you'd, what oh, this do you mean? Like, this okay. is the clapper. So it's the offline, um, I, I suppose you could call it the original home automation system. Um, so it is the vintage answer to it. The clapper uh, was first released back in 1986. So it's as old as I am, giving it away. <laughs> Um, but it basically has the versatility of an Alexa or a Google Home Assistant. You can plug devices into it and you basically turn them on with a clap of a hand. It plugs into standard light sockets and it also has the ability to have um, multiple devices attached to it. So it is quite smart while being offline. So two claps controls, one appliance, three claps controls, uh, another appliance. And I love the tagline for the clapper. It basically is the simple device that started it all. So I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is fantastic. And if you uh, like Neve, are one of those people who are trying to get rid of stuff in your house that is just taking up too much headspace and making your house uh, too smart, well then do let us know. Neve Marr, uh, Creative Director, Journal.ie, thanks a million Thank for coming so back into the home show and uh, for all your shopping, uh, which I know you love to do yeah. and you're great at it. And that is all we have time for on this latest episode of the Home Show podcast. If you've enjoyed it and enjoyed our guests and our topics, well, of course you can catch up all of our previous pods. They are wherever you get your podcasts from on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud or on Newstalk.com. Thanks to Eva Bean producing this week. Stephen McLoon was on sound. Uh, we'll get to do it all again next time. Do like and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we will do it all again next time. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Saturday morning at 8 on News Talk.